0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders Council of the Legal Services Corporation.
1: The courts had not adopted remote appearances in Illinois as a whole state until COVID happened and it became necessary for them to do so. And now, because many judges and lawyers like it, (laughs) it's likely to stay in some Mm -hmm. form, regardless of what happens with the pandemic. So I, I think that there's a lesson to be learned there. There's an inertia. How do we break through the inertia, right? And do we have to rely on the next disaster to be able to do it or can we organize the the pro se litigant community and the change comes up uh, and they demand changes. The court system is designed for for lawyers um, and judges. And and I think that we are seeing this very gradual change, right? And the court, many courts are realizing that their customer is not the lawyer or the judge. The customer is the citizen um, or the person who's accessing, um, trying to access justice.
0: Hello and welcome to Talk Justice coming to you live from the closing session of the Innovations in Technology Conference. I'm your host, Jason Taché. Every year ITC brings together legal aid professionals, technologists, and public officials to share their work and take new ideas back home. To close out this year's conference, we'll take a look at what we learned and provide thoughts on where we go from here as a community. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Quentin Steinhouse is a clinical fellow at the Suffolk University School of Law in Boston. Terry Ross is the executive director of Illinois Legal Aid Online. And Vivian Hessel is the chief information officer at Legal Aid Chicago. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Quentin, I wanted to start with you, and I want to start simple and just get the sense of what was your biggest takeaway from this conference?
2: Oh, I always take away so much from the Innovation Technology Conference, my favorite one of the year. And a few things stuck out to me that I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks. First was when we got to learn a little bit about the work that Michigan Legal Help was doing with data collection. One of the things that they pointed out was early on in the pandemic, they had seen a a huge increase in their use of their domestic violence protection order form. But when they talked with the court clerks, they found that actually the filings of those forms had been significantly going down. So really kind of remarkable story to me about how important it is to integrate some way to get forms to the court electronically. And they did turn those numbers around when they added email. Um, So I thought that was a really interesting statistic to me, uh, especially since we're working on all these e-filing projects right now at Suffolk. The other takeaway that was really selfish for me was I, I, I heard a lot of other people talking about it during the conference too, was the people's law school in british columbia and their use of a headless cms something i really never thought about before this little technical thing but like a really practical thing i'm going to definitely take back to my organization and try to use to implement to improve our own uh, website performance so two exciting things for me one negative story that i've been thinking about for a while and one just really practical tip i'm going to take back and use
0: Vivian Quinton just kind of shared two of the the projects that stuck out to him. What about themes that you saw over the last four days? Are there any trends that uh, were, were noticeable or curious to you?
3: Absolutely. The most noticeable to me, which was something I was really happy to see, is the emphasis on data security. Everybody was talking about it. Even if it wasn't a primary part of their project, they always had a chance to mention the importance of data security and from where i sit at legal aid chicago that's something that i'm constantly thinking about and it's something that is absolutely become more important during the pandemic as the bad guys out there are becoming more sophisticated uh, so we have to become more sophisticated too so i was really really happy to hear everybody talking about data security
0: And Terry, to bring you in on the conversation, so we've heard about headless CMS systems, which are a way to manage content on any type of website, regardless of what the front end looks like, Uh, cybersecurity, the work going on in Michigan around e-filing. Are these trends that Quentin and Vivian are talking about the same thing that you're seeing day-to-day in your work uh, in Chicago, or, or are you seeing something else?
1: Yes, certainly. Uh, all, all of these things are top of mind. Um, I would add one other, uh, which um, was a theme for me in the conference, and that is the importance of us as a legal aid tech community um, to figure out ways to address di- digital literacy. I went to several sessions where we talk about technology as being a solution, but we also have to recognize that people have different gradients of literacy and technology. Yes, everyone owns a phone, but do people know how to use it to access the browser? I think that's that's a really important component to add.
0: When we talk about uh, digital literacy, are you talking about from the service design perspective when it comes to dealing with clients, or are we talking about legal aid attorneys themselves, or are we, are we discussing both?
1: I was thinking more on the client side. I do think on the uh, legal aid attorney side, I do think that on that side, it's particularly important for us to look at how our clients and our client populations are communicating. What channels are they most comfortable communicating within and meet them where they are at
0: these are all very tech focused uh, lessons uh, that we're taking away from this particular conference. And we're also two years into a pandemic where we have all had to figure out how to do a bunch of things online that we previously all did in person. We did in courtrooms, we did in offices. And so to that degree, there's this big culture change component to all of this work that we're working on, which is non-technical in its nature, right? It's all human at its core to get people to use these things, to get them to like using these things, or at least, Uh, accept that they have to use these things. They might not like it. I'm curious if there's any lessons like that. Are there any non-tech lessons that you all have uh, taken away or or learned over the past two years that interact with these things? Vivian, I see you smiling, so I'll, I'll throw the question to you first.
3: Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is all of the collaboration that I heard about in all of the sessions that I attended. And I don't mean just collaboration in terms of one organization is working with another organization, but collaboration in the actual design of a new system and the way that we're going to ask the questions of the clients that we're trying to serve and the way that we're going to gather the information from the clients, and share it. Um, People were thinking about the best way to frame that question and not just talking about it from an advocate standpoint, but also talking about it from the standpoint of, how do we build it into the system? So there was this, this great theme of collaboration that permeated the entire conference. And everybody was sharing information and working together, but really getting into the nitty gritty in terms of Um, collaborating on how they were going to design something.
0: Is that to say that, you know, after years of people talking about it and presentations at conferences like ITC, that human-centered design is like, firmly uh, planted itself in the legal aid world? Is it safe to say that that's a conclusion we can take away from ITC 2022?
3: I think we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. You know, People are really thinking about how to build things in ways that make them the most useful. And they understand that it's not something that we can necessarily do the first time around. There has to be several iterations. There has to be continuous improvement and redesign so that we can make it better and better and better.
0: So building with and not for is one of the non-tech takeaways from this year. Terry, what about you? Uh, Any non-tech takeaways from this year's conference?
1: Yeah, well, that's certainly a big one, I think. Um, One thing that came up in some of the sessions repeatedly that I attended was the idea of being able to share information effectively. You know, we only have this conference once a year. It's wonderful. We get to interact and hear about all these different projects um, that People are doing across the world, and wouldn't it be nice um, to be able to to have some some place, some entity responsible, right, for coordinating all of this all of this information, so that we could access it on a regular basis and talk about some of these higher level issues that span all of what we're doing, regardless of what jurisdiction we're in.
0: Any conclusions or takeaways from those conversations? Can we expect? Uh, a repository like what you're talking about in the near term?
1: Well, I hope so. Um, there was seemed a lot of energy for it in the Roger Smith and Rebecca Sandifer session from the attendees. And so I'm I'm hopeful that something will come out of that.
0: I really liked that Indeed. session as well. And I think there's a lot of provocations that I want to get to. But before I do, Quentin, I wanted to pull you in on this idea of collaboration, because uh, you wear a lot of hats uh, in this world of ours. You're both uh, a lawyer, uh, a technologist, a practitioner, and a and a professor at Suffolk, and so I'm curious what this all looks like for you when you go back to the classroom. Are the topics that we are talking about at ITC translating for you and, and your students, is it leading to more collaboration between you and, and the folks that take your classes?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that I, Suffolk really emphasizes is that idea of trying to do practical training of lawyers. And so the classes I teach are all project-based and I've definitely benefited from coming to these conferences to learn about what's happening all over the country and all over the world. Collaboration is something we try to emphasize quite a bit. And I think we, we do that by bringing in students to work with clients at, or experts and to work with each other to try to develop something that really can solve the, the problem the right way. User-centered design is always an aspiration. It's it's tough when you're trying to fit that into a semester-long class, and we're trying to cover a lot of other topics. But having that as an influence it is really great, and something we try to highlight as a best practice.
0: You know, we, we mentioned uh, Roger and, and Rebecca's panel that was uh, moderated by uh, Tanina Rostain at, at Georgetown Law. There was so much uh, in that particular session it seemed a particularly active session for the audience, uh, at least what I noticed in the, the side chat on my screen. And so I wanted to pull out some of the, I thought were the more kind of provocative questions and get your senses of those thoughts. So also, I'll start off with one that, Roger tossed out, which was this idea that we should be incorporating the scientific method into our technical work in legal aid more. So this would be the idea that we're hypothesizing something, we test it, we report, regardless of what the outcome is, whether it was the thing that we wanted or it didn't work at all and it was a failure, and then we repeat that as we continue to iterate and improve on ideas or maybe jettison ideas. I'll start with you, Vivian. What do you think of this idea up front? Do we want to incorporate the scientific method into the work that Legal Aid is doing?
3: I think there's certainly a place for it. It brings me back to the user-centered design, right? Because that's where you would build something and test it and then go back and modify it and test it again. And that's certainly something that is familiar. That process is familiar to people in technology who have been working with tools that serve clients and consumers, basically, the public. But lawyers are not necessarily as familiar with it, and it's a good idea to try to expose them to it because it's important to keep reiterating, redoing, improving And I think that, you know, something else that I've noticed um, having had experience as both a lawyer and now a technologist is that people who work with technology are used to seeing things fail and having it be okay, because there's so much that you learn from that. But lawyers aren't necessarily trained to think that way. And so it's important that we actually do try different things. Um, and that we do let them fail when they fail and then learn from those experiences.
0: That's an excellent point and something I wanna pull on uh, a little bit more. But first, Harry, I want to pull on a different thread that Vivian pulled up, which is this idea of like familiarizing the legal community with this idea. I mean, you run an online organization. Would this be a hurdle as far as like a a culture shift is concerned at your organization? Or or do you think you're already there on account of being an online organization first?
1: we would love to do more ab testing which uses the scientific method <laughs> right um to to see what's what's effective what's more effective and so i definitely think it's something we would like to do more of um i think that one of the obstacles of course is having permission to fail right and that also connects to what vivian said our funding sources come from Grantors that uh, would like to see success and would like to see success measured um, and uh, and shown that research and development piece right, which is again you know scientific method is part of that, uh, does require you to have the space and the resources to be able to fail and learn from those lessons and carry them forward.
0: If funding or funders rather and their desire to see their money go and do good are not willing to take bigger bets on, on bold ideas that might not pan out. It sounds like then the culture shift is perhaps not so much on the lawyers, but rather, on the funders. And I'm curious, uh, how do we get there? I I recently dug into this on the international development stage. There doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for failure there either, even though there is an appetite for more technology projects in the justice space. And that's uh, a hard uh, square to circle, in my opinion. So I'm curious, do you have thoughts on how we begin to have discussions with funders that make failure sound appetizing?
1: Well, I, I do think you're spinning it, right? It's not a failure. It's, it's lessons. It's learnings, right? And other grantees can take those um, and build off of them. It's like the opposite of replication, <laughs> right? Um, we talk about, oh, let's build something that can be replicated. Well, let's build something that is not going to be replicated and make sure that we can learn from these mistakes, these failures, our experiments, right, and carry them forward um, in, as a whole community.
0: Quentin, I saw you come off of mute. Did you have uh, something you wanted to add? Well, I
2: kind of add to that is redefining the scope of what we build to be very small to start is one of the ways to help avoid some of that worry about failure. There's this famous article that talks about this idea of building skateboards first, not trying to build like a car that only has one wheel, you know, building a small part of the project that actually works and functions and lets you learn and test And get information and feedback from real users may not do everything but it actually is functional for part of it that concept i think can help lawyers lose a little bit of that fear of oh my god the project's a disaster if you make it really clear at the beginning hey the first version is going to just be part of the thing and we're going to keep building it on in in additional phases to have more of those more of those features that you you might think are critical I think a big risk of lawyers there, though, of course, is like that risk of, oh, some we're always trained to to be looking for the worst case scenario. So there's, there's some fear of releasing an unfinished product that someone can use to get bad advice and then have a really negative legal outcome, no matter how remote that possibility may be. And sometimes it is really, really, truly remote. But that's what lawyers are really good at identifying and finding.
0: And that concern always seems to be uh, overstated with technology and understated with actual attorneys in my uh, experience of watching the space. So one of of the things you mentioned in there is this idea that we start small and we begin to build on top of it. uh, And then it gets bigger, begins to do more, becomes more complex over time. And this, I feel like pulls a little bit on something that Margaret Hagan tweeted out uh, during uh, Roger and Rebecca's panel. Rebecca was talking about how the the access to justice technology has this thousand flowers problem is that there's all of these individual Projects, a lot of them are one off, super focused for a jurisdiction and are on a very narrow legal issue. And they don't scale uh, to other jurisdictions or to other legal issues. They're tough to update as laws change, or, or as you're talking about, Quentin, this need to become more complex over time. As an advocate, Quentin, of this idea that we can start small and build big, like where's the disconnect then? We have all of these small, one off projects. Like, what's the hurdle for us, in your view, from getting from those one off projects to something that's bigger, more impactful something scalable.
2: Well, I think that touches on another theme of the conference that I heard a lot about, which is this idea of integration, so building smaller services that can talk to each other and leveraging tools that maybe have those API integrations built in. So that's one theme, and then the other one is data standards. So if we're, if, if we're talking the same language, we can share the information better across tools. And then one more thing I would throw in, which I didn't hear a lot about at the conference, but I think is an important part of it too, is having something of a common visual language and written language. So doing more to standardize the way that we, we use those concepts. with something that's definitely been funded by TIG projects in the past, but I think there's always room to avoid reinventing the wheel and
0: all of those parts of the space. When yeah. you say common visual language, what specifically are you referring to? What examples are there?
2: Well, I I think we're seeing a really great flurry of new tools that help people solve legal problems. And a a lot of them look totally different from even inside what's built by one organization sometimes, right? Having some more consistency there will help litigants have a more familiar experience when they have to solve a different legal problem next year. I think that's something that we can start to develop. It's part of the immaturity right now of the web space, I think, is that a lot of people are doing very flowery visual design, which looks great, but then people don't know how to use the next website they go to because someone totally reinvented the way that that website works. And what's happening in our space too.
0: So that's a larger critique of kind of the development of of where we're at on web point. I don't know what uh, <laughs> we're, we're currently at three, I think the, News articles keep telling me. What about you, Terry? You're, you do work uh, online across a state. So there's a lot of different uh, potential for county to county headaches. What hurdles are you coming across uh, when it comes to scaling particular projects? Like, Do you feel like, to Margaret and, and Rebecca's point, that you kind of suffer in this too many one-off project space? Or do you feel like you've moved past that as an organization?
1: No, no. Illinois is an under unified um, court system, (laughs) Um, which means that there's 101 different ways to do things based on the counties uh, that exist in the state. And that in the jurisdiction issue is such a problem. Um, And I have not come up with a good solution for that that is scalable, right? I mean, obviously, if we, uh, if we contact all of the circuit clerks and all of the 101 counties in Illinois and ask them what their process is for filing an appearance um, in a divorce case, then, you know, we can take that information uh, and and incorporate it into the technology, but then somebody's got to keep it updated, right, and do it for the other 500 legal issues that we have content on. So I think there's a a federalism (laughs) um, component to that problem that, you know, the jurisdiction is is hard to scale. I think the other thing too is when building off of what quintin said, when you have a minimal viable product, you know, he's talking about an mvp, you start small and say well, what what's the most critical piece of it. You do have to be mindful of i want to scale this right? Like that has to be in the vision from the start. And I think that many of these one-off projects don't have that vision incorporated with it, right? They do have minimal application and they're designed for a specific legal issue, a given jurisdiction, and that's just how they're designed. The scalability isn't something that's considered from the beginning.
0: Is that something that you started to do in your work to think about how is this particular project going to scale when you're thinking about incepting a a new project?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think you have to. And, you know, and there's always going to be hard decisions to make, right? I think language access is a good example of this. Can you offer content in all of the different languages that are spoken in the state? And, And of course, we don't have The capacity to do that. And so we have to make hard decisions about what services we provide and what we don't
0: when they were talking about scalability during this panel, one of the things that jumped into my mind, insurance is able to go state to state, even though insurance is highly regulated at the state level. So where's the disconnect for us? Like if insurance is able to figure this out in all the jurisdictions that America has to provide and has the same kind of federalism headaches that we suffer from, like what's the difference for us? Is there a difference? Is there a lesson to be learned from the insurance industry? I will throw this out generally because I... Uh, I feel like this is probably a a curveball for for everyone here is none of us are insurance attorneys.
2: Jason, my guess is it's a money problem there. I think if we threw enough people at it, we could do that. Something like the insurance industry, which obviously does
0: have a lot of money to just throw hundreds of people at getting the the rules right. Okay, so I'll push back on that a little bit. Like outside of legal Zoom, I can't really think of a major like legal technology company, you're looking beyond just legal aid, that's really been able to scale nationally in, in a big way that we see happen in other industries. And they have, they have a lot of money, right? Like LegalZoom is highly capitalized. There's then no one else, like who's in second and third place there. So like, is it solely a money issue or are there other headaches that like, we're, we're just not acknowledging in regards to the hurdles that it takes to, to be able to scale these particular types of projects?
2: I suppose that maybe it's a... Just an order of magnitude more challenging. I, I mean, I don't want to give us too much credit for not solving the problem. If <laughs> it's we a hard have problem. Non-unified jurisdictions, and maybe the practice varies from clerk to clerk, even you know at the same court level, and one county versus another county.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That may not be a problem. That's the same thing that insurance agencies need to think about.
0: Fair enough. Fifty maybe. states, we might have fifty thousand jurisdictions that all are slightly different. Sure, no, without a doubt. Uh, Vivian, I saw you come off of mute. Did you wanna jump in on, on this question?
3: I agree with everything that Quinton is saying. It's really a money problem and a resource problem. So even if we don't need to pay for certain things, we need people to do the work. and And that would be the only way I could see it happening and a, the only way I could see us really addressing this issue of scalability and making something available uh, the way that LegalZoom was available.
0: Vivian, I want to stay with you for a second and pull on something that Quentin said in regards to one of the hurdles towards scalability and replicability, which was this issue of standards. We don't have a ton of unique standards uh, when it comes to the creation of, of legal databases or court databases for that matter. The National Center for State Courts has the uh, court uh, data standard that they're beginning to push out uh, into the world, but otherwise uh, the list is, tends to be very short. And I'm curious as someone who spends her time working in legal aid information management, uh, where are the needs for standards from your point of view? Like where do you find yourself feeling like, why do I have to create this? Why isn't there already something out there for me to just like copy and paste uh, and use in my organization?
3: Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is just uh, organizing all the information for our own uh, organization, for Legal Aid Chicago. And I'm sure other organizations, other legal aid organizations feel this way. Law schools feel this way. You know, there's the tagging functionality that's out there, but I think that that has only varying degrees of success. At least that's been my experience. And what you really want to do is have uh, a robust way to search for information that is as intuitive as possible. And there's there's some tools, Google, Microsoft, they've done some work here in this space, uh, and they've come a long way from when we first had an internet and internet searches. But uh, there's still a lot more to be done, you know, especially with regard to just Making it possible for us to refer a client to another organization, for example, um, when we can't help them at Legal Aid Chicago, having a, a, a way to search um, sort of a, a master database of uh, all the different legal aids in a particular jurisdiction, Chicago, Cook County, Illinois, uh, the Midwest, uh, etc. And it's it just it's not there yet. We're, we don't have that yet. I'd love to see something like that.
0: Something that, uh, Carolyn Robinson brought up in the Q&A channel uh, was this idea of competitiveness and ownership and where lawyers stand uh, in that regard. And, and one of the things I wanted to kind of pull out of this conversation is a lot of the things we talk about in ITC and, and just in our work in general is these incremental changes that we're trying to move forward, whether it's creating a standard, taking on work like figuring out how e-filing is going to work better, like how Quinn was talking about is going on in Michigan. Uh, these are kind of like the next phase of like where we are now, where we need to go. That's the next obvious step. I'm kind of curious if you see any potential step changes or or potential ruptures uh, in the way that these blockages currently work towards scalability, Um, something bigger than just um, improving the technology incrementally, creating a new standard, but uh, maybe seeing something big, like a seismic change in the way that kind of our ecosystem is structured and the rules around it work. Um, Terry, I'll I'll start with you.
1: I hope that that's going to happen, right? I mean, I think the pandemic has shown us necessity, you know, is the mother of invention, right? I, I think the courts had not adopted remote appearances in Illinois as a whole state until COVID happened and it became necessary for them to do so. And now, uh, because it many judges and lawyers like it, (laughs) it's likely to stay in some Mm -hmm. form, right? Um, Regardless of what happens with the pandemic. So I, I think that there's a lesson to be learned there. There's an inertia. How do we break through the inertia, right? And do we have to rely on the next disaster to be able to do it or can we organize the, the pro se litigant community and the change comes up uh, and they demand changes. I, the court system is designed for, for lawyers um, and judges. And, and I think that we are seeing this very gradual change right? in the court. Many courts are realizing that their customer is not the lawyer or the judge. The customer is the citizen um, or the person who's accessing, um, trying to access justice.
0: I like that. So it sounds like in in your view, the the rupture happened and it happened about two years ago. Uh, And and now we're dealing with with uh, not uh, what's the adage that you never want to waste a good crisis. Uh, it seems like at least in remote hearings, we've, we've accomplished okay. that much. One of the things I wanted to, to ask about. So in our last podcast of the year last year, uh, we were looking at kind of the year in review for technology and regulatory reform. And one of the guests we had on Bob Ambrosie, uh, he, uh, I asked him kind of, you know, what he was feeling at the end of the year. Was he optimistic about where we were uh, and where we were headed in, in the year to come? And he uh, indicated Uh, that he'd kind of been on a roller coaster for the pandemic. 2020, when everything shut down and there was this rapid adoption of technology, he was super optimistic about where things were going. And then I think like a lot of us throughout 2021, there was like optimism followed by not optimism and then followed by just like general malaise and stagnation. And that can be applied to legal technology and everything else, I think, from 2021. After four days of ITC, hearing about the work that's going on, I kind of want to get a temperature check on, uh, your optimism, I guess an optimism check as opposed to temperature, unless you want to convert to Fahrenheit, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, but Quinton, I'm, I'm curious, like right now, are you feeling optimistic about what we've seen happen in the last two years and it continuing forward? Are we stuck? Are we moving backwards? Where, where do you where do you see things going this year?
2: I am optimistic because I think we did see a little bit of a retrenchment from courts in terms of some pandemic changes that were unequivocally to the benefit of pro se litigants but not as much as i was afraid would happen we haven't gone totally back to the old way of doing things part of that's because of this pandemic that's never ending of course but also i think that is helping court administrators understand the the value of keeping some of those things there and being flexible i'm also optimistic because you know how did some of those innovations get adopted so quickly it's not because the courts had to build everything from scratch it's because Many of these have been been worked on quietly and um, we're ready to go because someone had already done all of the groundwork to make it ready for someone to pick up and, and use. So I'm optimistic about that too. I hope it doesn't take another crisis to get another wave of, of adoption from these tools, but it does show that that arc of improved justice it is does bend the right way. <laughs>
0: To totally mangle MLK there. <laughs> Vivian, what about you? How are you feeling about things right now in early 2022?
3: I'm optimistic as well because, just as Quentin said, it, it seems as if um, there has been a, a, a shift. As Terry pointed out, the courts have realized that they don't exist for the lawyers, they exist for the citizens and for the people who need to access justice. Uh, And you hear the courts talking about this and you hear even some of the lawyers talking about this. uh, And I hope that we can um, encourage all of our citizens to continue to be insistent that courts remain accessible um, and that we use the technology that we have to make them accessible.
0: Terry, maybe to to put a twist on the the same question, usually for every action, there is a counteraction. And as we push uh, and we see this trajectory, this momentum towards uh, courts moving away from being built for lawyers to being built for litigants and citizens, uh, should we be expecting uh, pushback, uh, the pendulum to swing backwards? or, Or do you think that we're on this trajectory for good?
1: I have an example that came up. I'm on the Illinois State Bar Association's Legal Services Delivery Committee. And one of my colleagues on the uh, committee gave this example of, you know, a small small town in downstate Illinois where they had adopted fully remote hearings. But the fact that there's only a dozen attorneys who practice in that county and they all practice on one street that goes through the town and they really just wanted to get back together again, right? And so, <laughs> and so the remote hearings aren't happening anymore, right? <laughs> because uh, because the lawyers missed each other and the judges, <laughs> right? Um, so so I think that's an example, right? Of you know, it, it also shows that I think that every every community is different. There's different needs. Uh, th- there are different resources um, available. Being able to tap into all of those at a local level is really critical um, when, you, when you talk about access to justice.
0: So it made a little bit of a concern to the reversion uh, to the mean, it sounds like in that one community in, in downstate Illinois, and I'm sure in other communities uh, that folks at the conference are experiencing as well. We got just a few minutes left, and the thing I wanted to end on was this idea. And Quentin hinted at it early in the the podcast: is how you translate what you learned at ITC into your work uh, back at home. I think a lot of people tend to leave these conferences pretty excited uh, and energized about what's possible, uh, and then you know, there's all sorts of trouble that lays ahead in regards to converting uh, all those awesome stories into to making it work in your jurisdiction so if you could all quickly and terry i'll start with you talk about how you take these ideas and and implement them at home like how does that translation process work for you
1: one of the things that we started doing a few years ago as a staff was that when someone on our staff when one of our colleagues went to a conference they would share their learnings all right what surprised you um what did you learn? What are you excited to implement? You know, what is, is a, a really good story that we should learn from in terms of, you know, don't do it or watch out for this. I think that's a good practice that we have. And, and I think the next step for us is to make sure that we, we all note it and say, okay, well, of all these ideas is which one do we want to pursue, right? Which one do we want to, to pilot, you know, in a small way? What can we do, right, to move this forward?
0: And Vivian, what about you and Naga?
3: Very much the same as what Terry said. I like to try to share what I've learned, especially with my team that I work with on a daily basis. But uh, this year, in addition, I think that one of the takeaways for me is, in particular is the emphasis on learning Uh, because everybody at ITC this year really made it clear that learning was important and that even though we had to be virtual again, uh, we were going to share ideas share information, learn uh, from one another, and continue learning. And you heard the presenters um, offer to make themselves available over and over again um, after the conference. And so uh, back at Legal Aid Chicago, uh, I know that we need to do a lot more to share technology and how to use technology and really put an emphasis on making sure that we can use all of the tools that we have available to us and make that, that process as efficient as possible for our, our staff.
0: Wonderful, and Quentin, I'll give you last word here. What do the folks at Suffolk Law have to look forward to now that you've spent four days at ITC? Well, I, I
2: definitely took notes during the conference and I made a couple of follow-ups. I'm really excited to, I forget now where the organization was based, but there was someone doing some really great stuff with HUD Fair Housing Complaints and we have a HUD Fair Housing Clinic at Suffolk that I think could use that tool really excited about that. And I mentioned the headless CMS. So that's, I try to take, jump on it right away. I think it's also benefit of this virtual platform is that it's a little bit easier for us to track down who did we see speak? Who did we even talk to at a a table, one of the round tables? I think that's a nice thing about this. I don't have to go back with a a stack of business cards and then trying to remember who it was that tied to that great idea that I heard one little silver lining. Although I certainly do miss getting to see everybody in person.
0: Absolutely. I think I think that's a, a generally shared sentiment. And it's nice to hear that even after our conversation around concerns of replicability, that you've already found two projects that you can take back to Massachusetts and, and do some good work with. So clearly not all is lost in regards to being able to replicate one of the one or two of the thousand flowers that, that Margaret mentioned in her tweet. Well, with that, I look forward and hope we have the chance to have you all on again to talk about how these translations work for you back at home and how you've been able to apply your learnings from ITC. I'd like to thank Vivian, Terry, and Quinton for being with us on Talk Justice today to close out ITC 2022. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to everyone that made this conference possible. And for Talk Justice, I'm Jason Teche. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.